Hello, and welcome to Season 3, Episode 5 of Bad Gays, a podcast about evil and complicated queers in history. I'm Ben Miller, a writer, researcher, and member of the board of the Schwules Museum in Berlin. And I'm Hugh Lemmy, a writer and author. Last week, we talked about one of America's first openly gay politicians, whose heroism about his coming out was tempered by his right-wing response to the financial collapse of 2008. Who are we talking about this week, Hugh? This week's bad gay is a fraud and a liar of epic proportions, a man who built his entire life on deceiving others, Elmer Dahori. Uh, this is a story all about appearances. How much do we trust our own eyes, and how much do we trust the judgments of experts? It's also a story about value, about class, about judging worth, and about how, by appearing as something, we can become something. Elmer Dahori was, in his own way, an artist. He was a skilled painter, although perhaps painting wasn't his true art form, because in his life as much as in his paintings, Elmer Dahori was a master of illusion. Truth was not an objective fact, but a material he could use to shape how other people thought about him, and hence to create his greatest artwork, his own life story. So when we talk about Elmer, especially his early life, we have to remember that we're discussing a work of art, an interpretation of reality. Some parts are accurate, some parts are false, but all of it is an illusion. To complicate the matter, the main source we have for Dahori's life is the author Clifford Irving, a man himself known for perpetrating one of the greatest literary hoaxes in the late 20th century. So, tread carefully from here on out. According to Dahori himself, he was born Elmer Albert Hoffman on April 14th, 1906, in Budapest, then in the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Dahori claims his parents were high society, his mother from a family of bankers to the Habsburgs, his father an ambassador to Turkey, and that his family home, a mansion on the shores of Lake Balaton. According to Elmer, it wasn't a happy childhood. He tells of waking up one evening in a deserted wing of the family home and running through its long, dark corridors, finding his parents hosting a party in the ballroom. When he ran up to his mother, holding court in a red silk suit, and flung himself at her, she jerked away from his kisses, telling him he'd ruin her makeup. So she's officially a gay icon, right? <laughs> um... Maybe, but not a good mother. The unhappy marriage broke down when he was 16, Her mother marrying his mother marrying a younger husband, and his father leaving on a diplomatic mission to South America. Definitely a gay icon. Well, except this is probably just the start of his deceptions. It's not true. It seems likely that his family were probably middle-class Jewish merchants. His father a wholesaler of handcrafted goods, and there's no evidence at all that his parents were ever divorced. Others have claimed that he wasn't even Jewish, but was born Elamir Horthy, the son of a Calvinist tailor. What is true is that he showed an interest in art from an early age. At 16, he left Budapest to begin his art education, moving to Nagybanya Artist Colony, which is now in Romania but was at the time still in Hungary. The art colony at Nagybanya was formed in the 1890s by a, four, by a group of young Hungarian artists who were advancing naturalism and were firmly looking towards Western European and particularly French artistic culture, while rejecting the art of the academy. The school started there uh, had somehow managed to survive the loss of most of its teachers and students during the First World War, and was rebuilding itself when Dahori joined, but was itself still lodged in the late 19th century realism in which the school had been started. Two years later, aged 18, he moved to Munich to go to art school, where his teacher drilled him in close attention and focus in his painting, 
before moving to Paris, aged 20, in 1926, to study at the Académie de la Grande Chaumier under the great French cubist Fernand Léger. Despite only being in his early 20s, the naturalistic style Elmer was trained in in Hungary was already out of style in the Paris art market that was enraptured by the cubist avant-garde. He struggled to change his style, to adapt, to develop his artistic vision, and importantly, he struggled to sell. Paris was going through what was known as the Agnès Follet, or Crazy Years, a period of intense artistic and literary flowering, with a nightlife to match. Picasso, Modigliani and Duchamp all lived in the city, as well as Gertrude Stein, Stravinsky and Gershwin, Josephine Baker and Ernest Hemingway, Cole Porter and Le Corbusier, James Joyce and Henry Miller. This was a time of opulence, of nightclubs and cabarets, of experiment, experimentalism, new fast cars to drive you to the Riviera, and outrage. This was clearly the world that the Hori wanted to live in, and it seems for a while he did, or at least he claimed to. We don't know much for sure about his time in Paris, especially in the 1930s, but he wasn't doing so well as police records have been f- have found that he was convicted 10 times in five different European cities for crimes such as counterfeiting, check fraud, and tellingly impersonating an aristocrat. So we have the beginnings of a sort of 1930s cubist wannabe Anna Delvey? Uh, Anna Delvey is actually a really, really good reference um, for, for Dehori's life. Um, but not a cubist. This is part of his problem is he, he was sort of still stuck in this naturalism, which was not popular and didn't sell very well. Um, but he'd clearly already begun what had become a habit of a lifetime, which is, um, dressing for the job that you want and not the job you have very much like Anna Delvey. Side note, all of you should see how we're dressed right now. It's really, I mean, the, the, the train on Hugh's gown uh, is about 17 feet long. It barely fits in the recording studio. It's really, um, I wish you could, I wish this was a video show so you could all see, really. Yeah, I'm in head-to-toe Prada. On the outbreak of the Second World War, Dahori returned to Hungary. And here our trail really goes cold. Hungary in the war was an Axis power under its regent, the anti-communist and anti-Semite Miklos Horthy and had passed anti-Semitic legislation as early as 1938. Dehori claimed that given his many years in Paris, his Jewish background, his friendship with a British journalist and spy, and of course his homosexuality, he spent the war first imprisoned as a political prisoner in Transylvania, and then deported to Germany as a homosexual Jew. Over the course of two months in the summer of 1944, over half of the Hungarian Jewish population 434,000 people were deported, mostly to Auschwitz, where 80% were immediately murdered. Within Hungary, about 250,000 Jews uh, survived the war. We simply have no way of knowing whether Dehori's story is true or not. It's certainly possible, but his claims of being taken to Berlin seem very unlikely, and the idea that he then managed to cross Europe by train in the immediate aftermath of the war to get back to Hungary even more so. However, as a Jew living in Europe immediately after the war, times were indeed strange, deception totally understandable. His one surviving relative, his maternal cousin, suspected that he'd spent the war in Spain, which was also possible and not exactly easy. Anti-Semitism has a long and deep history in Spain, and Franco had produced a list of all the Jews living in the country which he had handed to the SS. By 1946, he was back in Paris, now a very different city to the one he'd left. The art scene had been blown apart by the war and the Nazi occupation, and for the first time the centre of the art world had swung off its European axis and was now in New York. Dehori struggled to survive as an artist there, 
But one day he was visited in his studio by a friend from his pre-war Parisian days, Lady Campbell, the wife of the British racing driver Malcolm Campbell, who once held both the land and water speed records. Lady Campbell saw a drawing, a small sketch of a woman that he'd done on the wall of Dahori's studio. Oh, she said, a Picasso. Dahori, hungry and poor, replied, how did you know? <laughs> Lady Campbell said, oh, I'm a connoisseur. That's how I knew. She offered him £40 for it, which is nearly £1,700 in today's money. And obviously he took it. He then spent the money, so he was no doubt probably worried when Lady, Lady Campbell cornered him at a party a few weeks later, saying that she wanted to talk to him about the little drawing, because she was feeling a bit odd about it. Uh-oh. Taking him to one side, she confessed that she'd taken it to a dealer, who had bought it from her for four times the price. Dahori wasn't just relieved, he realised he might have found the route out of poverty. He went home and drew, and drew a bunch more Picassos, in his style from the 1920s, before taking him to a dealer on the left bank. He told him he was an old acquaintance of Picasso's, and the dealer bought it and the drawings for 5,000 French francs. Dahori said, Suddenly I realised I can sell something absolutely unexpectedly for quite a great deal of money in a time when I was unable, but absolutely unable, to sell any of my own paintings. I would like to see the poor Hungarian refugee who would have resisted that temptation. His career as a forger had begun, and he took it in earnest. For the first few years, he exclusively forged works on paper, as paper from the correct time period is much easier to come by, and unlike oil paintings, they don't need time to dry. Meanwhile, he was still trying to make it as an artist in his own right, and in 1947, he took a trip to, trip to Brazil, uh, where he made work, and then by the end of that year, he was in America, arriving with a three-month visa, which he promptly overstayed. But he managed to pull off that he was an aristocrat, a baron, and securing for himself his first solo show, a major landmark in the career of any painter. His show opened at the Lillianfield Galleries in New York, a respected gallery run by Carl Lillianfield, who had built a career representing European post-impressionists, as well as later artists like Dufay, Chagall and Braque. A review of Dahori's show in Art News reads, His lively realism, reckless paint and lush colours strike the well-known chord of the School of Paris, as do his subjects. French ports, harlequins, and facile portraits. He also began to paint the portraits of the sort of exclusive American society people that he'd begun to hang, out, hang around with. He lived in the US for almost 12 years, making his money by travelling around, selling his forgeries under an amazing array of false names. A later dealer listed amongst his pseudonyms, Elmer de Hori, Elmer Hoffman, Elementar, alias Hoffman, Baron de Hori, Hauri, Huri, Hori, Hori, Baron Reinal, Reino, Reinol, or Reinal, Comte de Herzog, Baron de Bugardi, Von Bonidae, Bonji, Elmir Laszlo, Dauri, Dori, Bhutan, Dori Bhutan, Casu Robert, or Casu Charles, Louis Carrel, or, Car or Curiel Charles. Take your pick. All of it. All of what you just said, that is my dragon. <laughs> Patented. Elmer de Horry, etc., 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 Curiel Charles, Dupree Davenport, Mercedes, Diamond. Well, now he was more settled and more confident, so he was producing not just works on paper, but more lucrative oil paintings. And he's simultaneously producing forged works and selling works under the names that we just heard? 
Um, or the names we just the names, the names that he's using to sell forged works, and he's producing his own works also under his name. He's producing his own works under his name as Almeida Hori, but at the same time, he's using the other names as pseudonyms uh, as a sort of, as this Hungarian baron or various sort of characters to meet and meet people and sell them these forgeries. Right, so he doesn't have to explain how he got yeah. a thousand Picassos or whatever. Okay. Yeah. So he was selling not just works on paper, but these more lucrative oil paintings using these old canvases that he'd bought and then scraped the paint from. So the the canvases, the frames themselves looked authentic. His success relied upon a perfect storm of factors. Firstly, he was a very good forger, obviously. Perhaps the best, in fact. He could turn his hand to many styles. Not just Picasso, but Matisse, Brat, Dufay, Medigliani and Renoir. Secondly, he was clearly extremely charismatic and he could play the role of the European aristocrat perfectly to his post-war American audience. This feeds into the last part of the puzzle, the nature of the art world, and the way the art economy works makes it uniquely susceptible to trickery, like Dahori excelled at. So let me explain this a bit, um, as someone who has a little knowledge of the art world. The art market is basically a confidence game, and I I don't mean that entirely cynically. Um, What I mean is, how do you assign value to art? It's extremely difficult because... Obviously, its intrinsic value is so low as a piece of canvas or a lump of bronze, yet its exchange value can be absolutely colossal due to its potential as an object of speculation. What holds together the entire art world is collective confidence, um, or otherwise, in an artwork's ability to hold and increase value. This confidence is absolutely vital because the value of any given artwork produced by an artist has a direct impact on all the other artworks by the same artist. As an example, let's say I have a painting by an artist, um, Joe Bloggs. I paid £10,000 for it. If Bloggs' painting begins to become fashionable, popular, sought after, his next painting might sell for £50,000. As confidence in the artist has risen, my painting may now be worth far more, £20,000, £40,000. Therefore, confidence in the art of our artwork is imperative. If Bloggs' next painting is bought by a collector who's famed for their good taste, let's call her Baroness Smith, uh, whose ability to spot great young artists whose career booms, etc., that painting might shoot up even more. There's only a few of Bloggs' paintings on the market after all, and the great tastemaker, Baroness Smith, owns one of them, so they must be good. But then let's say another buyer, we'll call him Robert Johnson, CEO of Capitalist Bastard Corporation. I see we're really going for Brecht poem levels of subtlety here. <laughs> um, so Robert Johnson, uh, he sees that, oh, Bloggs is on the rise, so he buys his painting for £50,000. But just a year later, with Bloggs's new show opening at some prestigious gallery, he flips the painting, as it's known, uh, which he's got a reputation for, and he takes £100,000 for it at auction. So suddenly confidence is damaged in the young Joe Bloggs because um, perhaps the paintings were never worth anything in the first place. Perhaps everyone who bought them was just like Robert Johnson, CEO of Capitalist Bastard Corporation, who doesn't see any long-term value in them, but just realises he can make a quick book. And so suddenly everyone is selling their Joe Bloggs. Bloggs' paintings' uh, values drop like a stone in freefall. And before you know it, my Joe Bloggs, bought in good faith £10,000 a few years ago, is now only worth £3,000 even though Joe is still making great paintings that you personally like. Soon Joe Bloggs' gallery isn't making enough money for it to be worth anything, so they drop him. And now Joe can't afford his studio rent anymore or his paints, so he has to retire from painting altogether. This is how artist careers can be built and destroyed on this idea of confidence. 
any element of doubt can absolutely destroy value, even with massively famous long-established artists, even with dead artists who are normally a safe bet. That's why art foundations uh, set up following artists' death jealously guard the ability to validate and endorse artworks in that artist's name. And it's why gallerists have been known to buy artworks off themselves at auction, losing these huge amounts in auctioneers' commissions, simply to safeguard the prices of all the other artworks by that artist in their big warehouse. Anything that builds confidence in an artwork's value, inclusion in the catalogue, profitable sale at an auction, or other artworks by the same artist being in prestigious collections, increases its value. Likewise, anything that can add to an artwork's provenance, that is, its history of ownership that ties it to that artist, also increases trust in the artwork and hence value. So if I own a painting that I say was painted by Joseph Bloggs in 1930, that's one thing. But if I can prove that I own it because I am Joseph Bloggs' grandson, and here's a photo of me and Joseph Bloggs when I was a child, with the painting on the wall behind us, then suddenly the confidence in that artwork has massively increased. I assume that Bloggs paints dogs playing poker on velvet backgrounds with Elvis. or Yeah. Um, so a huge amount of the confidence in the artwork relies upon these social networks of the art world. Trust is the highest value commodity. And that's why art language remains so frustratingly obscure and academic, because such language is seen as proof or evidence of the integrity of the artwork to rich buyers who might have made their money in a different industry and not actually be very well versed in discussions about art. It doesn't matter if it's bollocks, if it's believed, and it doesn't matter if, if it's coherent or meaningful if it doesn't exude credibility. Dahori's ability to exude credibility, to appear as a baron or as an old friend of Picasso's or so on, is what made him able to almost literally draw his own money. In this way, he was no different to Picasso or to Dali. Does it matter if this painting is good or bad? Does it matter if I like it or hate it? It doesn't matter so long as you can prove it is a Picasso. It doesn't even matter if it is or isn't a Picasso, if Dahori could make you believe it was a Picasso. And Dahori could make you believe anything. One thing that interests me in Dahori's story, especially after having watched footage of Dahori entertaining friends in the incredible and strange 1973 Orson Welles film, F for Fake, which tells his story as well as Irving's and Welles' respective talents for artistic deception, is to what degree Dahori's skills as a confidence trickster are in some way the result of a sort of queer affect. That's to say, are the survival skills developed, especially by gay men in the past, skills that make us attuned towards interpersonal behaviours or towards coded languages, towards deception or towards ingratiating ourselves with others? Is there an aspect of homosexual life, risk of getting caught, fear of sudden and unexpected social threats, that makes gay and queer people extremely socially aware? Is this queer affect something that gay and queer people can and have historically turned to their advantage, and something that displays itself in our art and culture? Drag, for example, is impossible without an almost intuitive awareness of the minutiae of gender codes. And would a heterosexual man have ever written so perfectly observed scenes of social conformity and desire as Tennessee Williams? No. <laughs> I'm curious as to whether Elmer's life story, one of hardship but also adaptability, uh, and a queer life is something that equipped him to be a great forger, for his talents were as much social as they were artistic. For example, his extraordinary capacity for hearing, reading, remembering and sharing gossip, and for name-dropping, was key to establishing his credibility as a former friend of many of the artists whom he forged. 
It wasn't enough that Elmay could paint like Picasso, Matisse or Renoir. He could also entertain as a great aristocrat fallen on hard times, and could charm and flirt with such precision and skill that everybody believed that he was the sort of person who would own such artworks. Nevertheless, his luck and charm couldn't run forever. In 1952, he ran into trouble when a dealer, impressed with his Picassos and Renoirs, became suspicious in noting a certain quality of line in a Modigliani that he had recognised in the Picasso. Dahori left town quickly, but he ran into the same problem a few years later when, having bought a Matisse sketch from him, the curator of the Fogg Art Museum in Boston, Agnes Mongan, became suspicious of its authenticity, having seen more works that he'd presented by other artists. Author Jonathan Keats suggests that Elmer could successfully emulate any of these artists individually, but when they were seen together, their collective nature revealed a consistency of a sort of superficial prettiness that was all Elmer's. The thing is that his paintings are very good. He was effortless in achieving their style, and his deceit was helped by the fact that he never copied a painting in his life. He just emulated other artists on new subjects. He was also helped along by the fact that he was now largely forging paintings, which he could sell, more, uh, sell for more, meaning fewer opportunities at getting caught. Yet he couldn't go on forever using fake names, and he was getting known in the art world as well as to the FBI. In 1959, depressed and tempor temporarily returned to his own art practice with little success, one account says that he mainly sold portraits of pink poodles to interior designers in LA, which you don't need a handbook on homosexuality to decode. Oh, girl. Um, he attempted to take his own life with an overdose of pills. He was saved by his friends, and then he was nursed back to health by Fernand, Fernand Legros, a young Egyptian man he'd met in 1955 in New York. The two moved to Miami. Ah! <laughs> this is just turning into like a catalogue of mid-century American gay tacky. Um... When they're in Florida, the Dahori and Legros, uh, who he was in his mid-twenties, uh, met a young French-Canadian named Réal Lessard. Dahori coached the two men in the mores of the art world, and they set themselves up as art dealers selling his fakes. The great advantage was that they were totally unknown, allowing Dahori to concentrate on painting while they concentrated on sales. Legros and Lessard then brought their own unique talents to the table. Realising provenance was a key hurdle to gaining confidence, they adopted a whole set of new tactics, including forging documents, bribing or convincing experts, and even on one occasion, taking a fake Kies van Dongen painting to the ageing artist Kies van Dongen, who was now in his 90s with failing eyesight, and making him authenticate the painting as one of his own that he'd painted nearly 40 years previously and just forgotten about. The two men also inserted reproduction photographs of the Hori's paintings into pre-war monographs, which they would then present to prospective clients. They also occasionally sold authentic paintings that they'd picked up, interspersed with the Dahoris, which added credibility and in the long term made it very difficult to retroactively remove fakes from collections, for fear of throwing out authentic paintings tainted by their association with the two dealers. Oh my god! Yeah, clever. Legros and Lassard, who became both lovers and rivals, brought a colossal amount of evil twink energy into Dahori's life. So they... Um... Legros started out as Dahori's lover and then left him for Lassard. I think that's the, that's the implication. I mean, Legros and Lassard were definitely lovers. And um, yeah, maybe there was something of that between Legros and uh, Dahori originally. Okay. Um, but first of all, they raised their commission on sales to 50%, up from 40%, which in 
which I think is probably fair enough, reflecting the risk that they they were taking as the front men in the forgery. However, they were actually already lying to Dahori about how much they were selling for, so they got a huge cut while Dahori still struggled to get by. Fed up of the two, he moved to Ibiza at the end of 1959, but... Just more, like, canonical gay tacky. Well, he knows how to live. That's unbelievable. Um, but he ended up maintaining his professional relationship with the two. Legros uh, paid Dahori a stipend of $400 a month, and then Dahori, who was living in this nice house in Ibiza, um, which at the time had a sort of burgeoning bohemian culture where he would mix with pop stars and aristocrats, would simply paint a demand, you know, like... um, Legras would say, I want, a, I want a Picasso, and this is the subject, and he would just sort of improvise on these demands. Dahori claims that he never signed a single painting that he forged, and that Legras did all the signing, which is an important detail, um, because that makes Legras the criminal, and Dahori is just a painter who paints like other artists. As the 60s went on, Legras was now selling paintings for huge prices. He sold over a million dollars worth of paintings in value to the Texan oil tycoon Algor H. Meadows. And in all, if his paintings were on the market today, you'd be looking at a conservative estimate of over $50 million. Legrasse was, paint- uh, was pocketing nearly all of it. Uh, Dahori was just getting his $400 a month. Algor H. Meadows is a good example of the other side of the confidence in the art market. What buying art can do for your cultural value. Meadows was a self-made man, and he wanted the cachet of being seen as worthy of his money. He was hugely wealthy, but he approached the art world's kind of classic nouveau riche. He saw value in the price tag and art functioning just as normal basic commodities. So he wanted quantity and he wanted a low price. He didn't want to necessarily cultivate a specific taste, which in the long run would produce the credibility that all art collectors both desire and need in order to give increased value to all their collections. Le Gros would therefore allow Meadows to push the price down on paintings, and Meadows thought he was just getting a good deal rather than seeing as his like really obvious that the discounts were viable only because Le Gros uh, had this commodity of paintings that wasn't finite. You know, Renoir could always knock out a few more Renoirs. But then came the fall. Lessard and Le Gros, who are now estranged and rivals, um, yeah, they became, when twinks fight, yeah. They became embroiled in a legal battle when Legrasse stole a briefcase containing business information from Lassard. Lassard had Legrasse jailed, and Meadows finally twigged that he was dealing with a shady businessman. He invited a group of experts to assess his collection, hoping that they'd alleviate his doubts, but they declared most of the collection fakes. He was furious, he alerted Interpol, and Legrasse went on the run. Uh, Meadows then sent his fakes to Wilden- Wildenstein and co., who were experts on the modern period in Paris. And uh, they then declared that actually eight of the so-called fakes were real. So this confusion was exacerbated by the fact that Le Gros was occasionally selling these real paintings. Um, and here the confidence in the markets comes into play again. Nonetheless, Le Gros and Lassard were on the run and Le Gros turned up at Dahori's Ibiza home. Except it wasn't Dahori's home. Le Gros still owned it. And he turfed him out. Uh, Legrasse was arrest- arrested for check for- fraud, and now it was Dahori's time to live on the run. But he was tired of running. In 1968, he moved back to Ibiza and resigned himself to justice. Living under Franco's fascist regime, homosexuality was illegal, and it was that in the end that they got him for, much like Al Capone getting done for tax evasion. 
but due to the complicated extradition laws inside fascist Spain, and the fact it could never be proved that he actually committed forgery on Spanish soil, he was never jailed for it. After two months, he was released and exiled from Ibiza for a year. So they got him for homosexuality on Ibiza. Yeah, and he served two months in prison in Ibiza and then was um, exiled from Ibiza for a year. Okay. Um, but he missed the island, uh, and he returned as soon as he could in 1969 with Le Gros still on the run, and he had no way to support himself. But there he met a young writer who was living on Ibiza called Clifford Irving, who wrote a life story of Dahori entitled Fake, the story of Elmer Dahori, the greatest art forger of our time. But whether it was Dahori's life story is perhaps another question. Uh, either way, the book was a success, and he sort of enjoyed a latter-day celebrity, a fame of sorts even attempting to return to producing his own paintings again, although never terribly successfully. He was featured in media profiles and interviews and lived in Ibiza with his companion and bodyguard, Mark Forgy. So, wait a minute. He's an art forger and his boyfriend was named Forgy? Yeah. Oh. Um, the his, bodyguard. His bodyguard. I'm sure they had many stimulating conversations. Well, actually, in the book, um, Irving talks about his taste in boys. Quote, Elmer could cruise through cafes and bars on a spring or summer evening, sit down with his many friends, and meet whomever, whomever he liked. Unfortunately, the relationships that developed out of these encounters were rarely satisfactory. For one thing, although the Hori liked young men who were, as he put it, undemanding, he himself made more demands than were to most people's liking, and in his house he tended to treat his companions, unless they bore a title before their name or had money, more as servants than as guests. For another, his taste often ran to types who, in any other kind of community, would have been labelled as juvenile delinquents. And for this, he paid the price. He was even more of a natural victim in his personal life than in his profession. So trade. He liked trade. Yeah, uh, I, I get a smell of homophobia from Irving's uh, depiction of it. Um, but that's just my sense of natural victimhood, maybe. Hmm. In 1973, he featured in F for Fake, a film in which Orson Welles profiles both the Hori and his friend and biographer Clifford Irving, whom, um, upon completing his biography, nearly fooled the publishing world of a fake biography of the reclusive American business magnate, film director, and plane designer Howard Hughes. The film is a strange, rambling thesis on the illusory nature of art and deception, held together largely by the charm of both Orson Welles and the Hori. There's no escaping it. As the camera follows him around a party of rich and successful Ibethan dilettantes, Dahori is utterly captivating as a figure, a cheeky smile as he spins a tale or refuses to quite answer an honest question. There are a number of scenes where, in front of the camera, Dahori sketches a perfect Picasso before holding it over the flames of his fire and watching it burn. We know it's a fake, but as a viewer, you can't help to be astonished to see such potential wealth go up in flames. Interviewed by Irving, Dahori denied that he somehow had to inhabit the soul of the artist he was faking. Could you write a story like Hemingway by trying to put yourself into Hemingway's mind and soul? Could you become Hemingway? No, it's a terribly vulgar and romantic explanation, though I'm sure the public eats it up. What I did was study, very, very carefully, the man's work. That's all there is to it. For Matisse, for example, I had to be particularly careful. At the beginning, I used a very easy flowing line for a Matisse drawing, because he had, I thought, a very simple line. And then suddenly, later on, I realised that his line was not as secure as mine. 
Obviously, when he stopped work to glance up at his model, his line stopped too, and just that tiny little bit of uncertainty. Where I went very securely on, Matisse was hesitant, insecure. I had to correct that. I had to learn to hesitate also. Of course, I never had... I never have had much respect for Matisse anyway. He was far and away the easiest artist to fake. Bitch. Meanwhile, the French were still trying to work out a deal with Spain to extradite him. And in December 1976, the deal was reached. Mark Forgy, Dahori's companion, informed him of the impending extradition. And that night, December 11th, 1976, he took an overdose of sleeping pills washed down with cognac and died in Forgy's arms. We're on season three of our show, and we can't believe how much support we get from our listeners. Thank you so much to those of you who already support our Patreon. This season, we've launched a new website at badgazepod.com. There you can find our back catalogue of episodes, a link to support us on Patreon, and t-shirts. Beautiful t-shirts that say Bad Gaze or Evil Twink Energy in black on white or white on black. They cost 20 euros plus shipping, and 2 euros from each purchase goes to The Outside Project, a grassroots group that has organized a collectively run community LGBTIQ plus crisis and homeless shelter and community center, the first of its kind in the UK. And for our Patreon donors, we're adding new levels. For $5 a month, we'll send you our monthly newsletter of recommended reading, and high levels get free shirts. Thanks so much for your support. Again, all that good stuff. Patreon t-shirts episode archive is available at badgazepod.com and linked in the show notes that's badgazepod.com well thank you for that story hugh um i want to start by asking a question about this uh thesis that you put forward of the certain kind of gay study of social codes contributing to his success as a forger and i know you've done a lot of thinking and you've shared some of that thinking on this show about uh, the sort of gay or queer figure of the spy. And I'm wondering if you see affinities between this sort of queer spy figure and this queer forger figure, um, and if you want to reflect a little bit more on that. Yeah, I think there's a lot of similarities that, again, come down to what I was saying earlier about this idea of some sort of queer affect, that living in this repressive society with these um, very strict social codes and also these dangers of being caught outed etc like the implications of being caught for Dahori virtually anywhere that he lived in his life whether that's Hungary um, probably could get away with it in Paris but then in America and then in Franco Spain um, did necessitate uh, a hyper awareness of social codes that I think he probably brought to his um, to his forgery in the same way that um, espionage, uh, like spies bring to their espionage, their spycraft. Um, and I think that's one of the reasons that the Hori is such an effective forger is because actually um, he understood that that the trick of the art world is confidence um, and social engineering or social manipulation. And so actually um, the, he could, you can ride through a lot of technical problems by doing that, you know, that, 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 his personality and those social codes were the way he was going to sell things. You know, it wasn't enough to just be able to forge. It's how do you get those forgeries into the economy and logic of the art market to be accepted as trustworthy paintings. And I think a lot of that definitely comes down to uh, his ability to charm in this way that I think probably does have a, a lot to do with his queer affect. Right, yeah. I mean, how did he manage to... 
I mean, you, you mentioned one case in which the the painting is actually brought to the person who supposedly painted it, who then actually authenticates it, which is an astonishing story. Um, in other cases, I mean, Picasso died only a couple of years before Dahori did. Was there never, I mean, did no one ever think to maybe all of these Picassos that are suddenly showing up in these unknown art dealers in Florida, maybe we should ask Pablo if he ever painted any of them? Well, but, but Picasso had a... 80 year career of painting every every single day you know, he there's, he produced thousands and thousands of works so you can't take every piece especially in those days you can't just it's not you could just email a photograph to his agent or whatever you know like these gaps in the way that the art world works that allow forgers like Dahori to make their way into it so um yeah like I, I don't think there was uh, necessarily a, a problem there do you know how uh, the decisions were being made to um, decide in what sort of subject or style directions the forgeries went? I mean, one of the other kind of great art forging stories of the 20th century is the story of Hans van Meegeren, who is a Dutch uh, art forger who managed to sell a lot of fake Vermeers to the Nazis because uh, I guess a core tenet of Nazi art history or Nazi art theory was that a painter as great as Vermeer would never have just concerned himself with these uh, small-scale domestic uh, scenes. And so Van Meegeren created these truly hideous... Um, enormous kind of epic Christian Vermeers and then sold them out to the Nazis, um, ended up becoming sort of a national hero in the Netherlands after the war because he had, because he had, uh, tricked the, tricked the Nazis. But were they deciding what he should paint based on sort of, um, things that art history said there should be more of? Were they trying to recreate things that had been lost? Were they just trying to do things in recognizable styles? What was the, do you have any sense of how that was working? Well, yeah, that's one thing I think is really interesting is that he wasn't—he was never copying. He was always developing new things in the style of in certain subjects, um, in the style of Matisse. You know, like I'll do some Matisse's flowers, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, I think that's because at the time the art market for modern art was still quite small. You know, the huge boom in the art market that came after the nineteen sixties uh, wasn't really in place then. You know. Um, so this was like a secondary art market that he could just feed these things into. And I think, yeah, like I'd imagine, um, especially once uh, Le Gros got involved and was telling him what to paint, there was probably a lot of painting towards um, to demand almost. And I think earlier earlier in his life, there was a certain number of occasions where um, people asked him, do you have any more uh, nudes? Do you have any more, you know, line drawings of faces? But because yeah, like, oh my goodness, I just happened to have one. Yeah, that's that story comes up quite a few times uh, in reading about his life. Is there? Do you have any sense of what happened to the body of Dahori work? I mean, uh, there's a couple a couple questions sort of contained within that one. One, uh, how did museums and collections go through the process of getting all the Dahoris out? Did they? Um, did they not? Do we still think there may be? Uh, misattributed to Hori's in, in collections. Uh, and then the other question being, has there now, uh, given his sort of fame or infamy, is there now kind of a market in either original to or in known to fakes? Um, well, I'll take this in order. First of all, the, um, the technology and the, the, uh, processes for discovering fakes has 
absolutely rocketed in the sort of 40 years since Dahori died. Um, so, so now with sort of, um, uh, ultra red and x-rays, et cetera, et cetera, um, it's very easy to spot the fakes. So I think probably most have been taken out of the, uh, definitely out of the larger collections and probably out of most of the smaller coll- collections by now. Um, especially after he was sort of outed and it became a big story in the 70s. I think that was probably a, a process for that. But it was made doubly complicated by the fact that, for example, um, he also sometimes claimed that uh, numbers of paintings in big museums were his. So, for example, um, the portrait of Mademoiselle Rudenko by Matisse, he claimed as his, despite the fact it's got a, falseless, a faultless provenance because it was given... Uh, donated to the museum by a financier who had bought it straight from Matisse's hands. So, like the the provenance was totally provable, and yet he just claimed it as one as one as one of his. So that probably complicated the matter somewhat. And yes, there's now uh, a secondary market of people buying um, the Horis, uh, and Mark Forgey is sort of keeping the flame alive and trying to um, make sure and validate most of those because they now have their own value to the extent that he seems to be very worried about. Um, Forgeries of the Horries. Forgeries of the Horries forgeries. Um, there are now fakes of fakes, which, um, you know, enters like an entire new world of inception of uh, art fraud. Amazing. Well, um, that brings us to the inevitable question. Elmir de Hori, bad gay or not bad gay? Not bad, not gay. Definitely gay. Definitely gay. 100% gay. And um, Pink poodles in Miami and Ibiza. Oh, my... I mean, uh, it depends how cynical you want to be about the art world. I I feel like probably, especially early, extremely, yeah, especially early on. I feel like there's probably plenty of people who knew and were going along with it because it's nice to have a cheap Picasso. Um, I I also think that given the situation he he was living through, uh, and especially um, if we take his word on what happened uh, during the Second World War, this urge for survival and using his skills i I'm, i find kind of admirable he was living in a really tough situation and he managed to spot like so many of these sort of good bad gays we we feature he managed to really spot the gap in the market so to speak um he figured out how to navigate his way to surviving and we know about him just because he was successful at surviving and there's nothing gayer than that so, uh, what are some of the sources you that people uh, you used to uh, research this episode that people could use if they wanted to find out more about Elmer de Hori? Um, well, of course, there's the um, Irving book, Fake, which is basically Hori's take on the whole situation, and then I also, which is by Clifford Irving, and then there's also Forged: Why Fakes Are the Great Art of Our Age by Jonathan Keats, which um, is a bit more critical in its perspective. On top of that, there's also Mark Forgey's memoir, The Forger's, the Forger's Apprentice, Life with the World's Most Notorious Artist. And I also used um, an article called Elmer de Hori, The Story of the Most Famous Forger in Art History by Eleanor Martinique, which is on widewall.ch. Great. Well, uh, thank you all so much for listening. Uh, you can follow the show on Twitter at BadGazePod. You can follow me on Twitter at BenWritesThings. And you can follow me on Twitter at Hugh Lemmy or subscribe to my weekly newsletter, hugh.substack.com. And you can always support us on Patreon by visiting patreon.com slash badgazepod. Thanks so much. See you next week. Bye. 